We're going to wrap up a series called God Behaving Badly today. It's taken from a book by that very same title written by a guy named Dr. David T. Lamb. And the very sort of sticky question we're going to take a stab at answering today is this one. Is God legalistic or is he gracious? Is God legalistic or is he gracious? And even the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. Do you like Calvin and Hobbes? Yeah, it's a great comic strip. Even Calvin and Hobbes uh, get into answering this question a few years back in this comic strip I'm going to work through with you. First frame, uh, first there was nothing. See if this sounds at all familiar to you. And then there was Calvin, right? Calvin, the mighty God, creates the universe with pure will. From utter nothingness comes swirling form. Life begins where once was void. This has biblical undertones, doesn't it? But Calvin is no kind and loving God. He's one of the old gods. He demands sacrifice. Yes, Calvin is the god of the underworld, and the puny inhabitants of earth displease him. The great Calvin ignores their pleas for mercy, and the doomed writhe in agony. And there's Calvin in the background playing where all of this is taking place, and his dad says, have you seen how absorbed Calvin is with those tinker toys? He's creating whole worlds over there, and his little mom, precious mom, I'll bet he grows up to be an architect, she says, or maybe a guy with quite a god complex, right? And that comic strip captures many, many of the perceptions of God that exist out there. Like Calvin, many people hold to this view that while God is indeed the all-powerful creator of the universe, he's not kind, he's not loving, he's a sacrifice-demanding God watching little us writhe in agony. And in that comic strip, Calvin perceives God really, really negatively, doesn't he? There was also this portrayal of God... Uh, in pop culture from one episode of The Simpsons. How many of you watch The Simpsons? Do you, do you watch? Yeah, not many of us. I, I don't watch The Simpsons. I ran across this illustration. But in this one episode of The Simpsons, Lisa needs to rescue her baby sister, little Maggie, from a convent. And when she goes to the convent to rescue her little sister, the nuns are singing this song. If you're happy and you know it, it's a sin. If you're happy and you know right? Wow. And you're like, well, if sinning makes a person happy, well, then keeping God's laws, that's going to be like a big old downer, isn't it? And for many, the popular perception of God is that he designed all of his laws just to ruin our enjoyment, to squash our life, to make life, well, very, very unpleasant for us. For many, God appears to be very, very legalistic, doesn't he? Now, some people ask the question, what in the world is a legalist? What does that mean? Well, a legalist is someone who is obsessed with the law and has entirely lost sight of the purpose of the law. Legalists have no room for grace whatsoever in their interpretation of law, and they will therefore make laws that are demanding and strict and boring and arbitrary and very, very, very oppressive, and they'll just keep rolling those laws out, rolling those laws out, rolling those laws out. Which begs the question, is God then legalistic? Is God Legalistic, and it seems to make sense, at least in my mind, that we'd go to the beginning of God's written record, the beginning of Scripture, to begin to piece the answer to that question together. And to answer the, is God legalistic question, let's first ask this question, what is the very first command in the entire Bible? What is the very first command in the entire 
Bible. And some of you maybe in your head said something like, well, it's easy. Don't eat the fruit from that one tree, right? That is not the first command in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the first command in the Bible isn't a prohibition at all. Rather, it's a positive command to do something that's Well, pretty dang enjoyable. Genesis chapter 1, starting verse 28. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. God's very first command to human beings, this is where the PG-13 rating enters in, okay? Fair warning, if you you need to leave or cover ears, like this is fair warning, PG-13. God's very first command to human beings is be fruitful and multiply, And get this, not only is that God's first command in the Bible, it's actually the very first words that God speaks to all of humanity. And first words are usually incredibly important, aren't they? Which means that if humanity, God's image bearers, are going to follow his divine directive to be fruitful, well, what? Sex is going to be necessary, right? And you notice in the text that human beings were not just supposed to multiply, we're actually commanded to fill the earth. Have you seen how big the earth is? Right? Which doesn't that mean that God's asking or commanding us to have a lot of sex? Right? Have a lot of sex. God's very first command to humanity in the Bible is to have a lot of sex. Now, I'm going to insert a parenthetical comment here. If you're married... Right? Some of you are like, oh. <laughs> first man, first woman, they, they, were, they were married. And so I'm, I'm just going to say this. And at 9 o'clock I saw people, after I said this, get up and start leaving. And so, well, if you're not married, don't have sex. If you're not married, don't have sex. If you're not married and you're having sex now, like, it's not too late to stop. Like, you can stop now. You can stop today. You can make a declaration to the Lord and just stop. And sometimes we're in relationships with people of the opposite sex, and, and we know God's prohibition, right? There's this thing about sex only inside the covenant of marriage. And, and so what do we do sometimes? We, like, tiptoe right up to the very edge of that line, and we sort of dance around it. We try to do everything but have sex. No, I didn't actually have intercourse, but, you know, we just stop that too. Right? Because God's deal with the sex thing is purity. God's aim with the sex thing is, is purity. Purity inside the context of the covenant of marriage. One man, one woman, one marriage, one lifetime is God's intent with the sex thing. Save it. And some people, they say, oh, I just, you know, like, life is just so dull without sex. God's just out to kill my fun, and he doesn't want me to enjoy it. No, he just wants you to enjoy it deeply in the covenant of marriage. Inside the covenant of marriage. Save it for your spouse. Like, save it for your spouse. God's first command to all of humanity married humanity, is to have a lot of sex. Populate this earth. Fill it up with sweet little children. And that begs the question, so how bad are God's laws thus far? Right? Well, they're not too bad, are they? Now let's ask this question. What's the second command in the entire Bible? I'll give you a a, a hint. This command is about eating, but 
not like you think. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 16. But the Lord God warned him, that's the first man, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So you see God's second command was right inside that verse right there. You see it? Eat a lot of food. God's second command to humanity, eat a lot of food. God says, eat. And even more literally than just God saying, eat, he actually says, eat, eat. Eat, eat. Because see, in the Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament of the scriptures, the verb that God uses there for the word eat is actually repeated for emphasis. The New Living Translation captures that nuance. It translates the verse to say, freely eat. So God tells the first man, freely eat from any of the ever-abundant trees in the garden except that one tree, freely eat. Eat a lot of food. Eat a lot of food, second command in the Bible. Eat a lot of food. Now, we live in a world, don't we? We're all well, well aware of this, that is obsessed with both of those things I just talked about, sex and food, right? And I want, to know, I want you to know that my talking about God's first two commands in this way isn't any kind of attempt whatsoever to move us more towards the kind of hedonism that's so prevalent, so plagues our culture. That's not why I'm talking about this like this. And at the same time, we Christians, we followers of Jesus Christ, we often get a bad rap for being very uptight, for being very, very legalistic, especially when it comes to the sex thing. And so I'm talking about these two things because of the truth that we must, I think, be reminded that God's first two commands affirm, even shockingly affirm, how God views his creation. That it is very, very good and that he holds this expectation for us that we will delight in his gifts that he's given to us, which include sexuality and include food. That we'll delight in both of those things. So God says right out of the chutes, First two commands in scripture, have a lot of sex, eat a lot of food, which in my mind point out to us that God is actually quite generous. He's not legalistic, is he? The sex deal and the food deal, they're these two very amazing gifts. God gave them to us and he commands us to enjoy the things that he's given to us. God cares about your happiness. God cares about your pleasure. God cares about your satisfaction. And his generosity and his goodness and his graciousness are then, get this, the foundation upon which every other law that he gives is built. It's who God is at his very core. He's a generous God. He's all about blessing the people he created. And those first two commands tell us so much about God's character. Now sure, you get into the book of Leviticus and you start reading all of like these laws in the book. Have you ever read Leviticus? Like, oh my goodness, right? And you're looking at those laws and you're like, well, geez, those aren't anywhere near as pleasurable as the first two, make a lot of babies and feast all the time. And yet even the laws in places like the book of Leviticus, they can still be seen through this lens of a God who longs to bless and be generous. It's who he is. And so somehow... God, in the, at least in the perception of many, has moved from being an amazingly generous God who gives these amazingly generous gifts to the perception that many hold that he's a legalist. So how did, how did he go from there 
to there, at least in popular perception. Could it possibly be a guy named Satan, do you think? The answer is yes. The answer is an emphatic yes, as a matter of fact, because that's who Satan is. That's what he does. That's what he's about. He's the master manipulator. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see his master manipulation on full display. Here it is, starting in verse 1 of Genesis 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it, for if you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And what are the serpent's first words to the woman there? Did God really say you must not eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Did God really say that? Which you could loosely paraphrase into something like this. I know, the serpent says, that God is mean, stingy, and legalistic. But is he really so mean, stingy, and legalistic that he won't let you eat anything, woman? That's kind of what he said. And notice the serpent, the serpent in his craftiness, he doesn't make his point with blatant statements. He uses questions to make implications. He's wily, incredibly crafty. And so you see the woman's response to the serpent. Look at what she says. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, she says. And this is subtle. But that's not what God really said. What did God really say? He said, freely eat. He said, eat, eat, like have at feast on all of this. All of these trees, except that one, feast from them. But you notice in the woman's response, God's generosity, who he is at his core, takes quite a hit doesn't it? Not to mention this pesky little detail that the woman actually adds to what God told them. She adds to what God said. She puts words in God's mouth. See if you catch it here. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. She adds something in a response that God never even said. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? God never said that they couldn't touch the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. God never said that. She puts words in his mouth. God doesn't care if they touch it. He just said, don't eat it. Bad things will happen. Don't eat it. But you can touch it. She puts words in God's mouth, which makes God out to be quite a legalist, to look quite legalistic. Not to mention the fact that Yahweh appears to be wrong. The serpent appears to be right because you notice the two humans don't literally die on the day they ate the fruit. And so you see the serpent negatively portrays God. And his negative portrayal, his manipulation of God effectively convinces the humans God's commands, they're really not good for them. See, they're really not good for you. See, God really doesn't have your best interests in mind. He's just a jerk. 
What a jerk. But perception isn't reality. Even though the serpent, even though the woman, even though the man, they may perceive God negatively. They may perceive his commands as being very strict and very harsh, very legalistic. But that doesn't change who God is at his core. It doesn't change the very good things that he's done for human beings, the myriad way he's already blessed them at this point in history. And he has blessed them. Have a lot of sex. Eat all the really good food that you want except for this fruit from this one tree. And you see, what's true is that God's deeds reveal his goodness. God's deeds reveal his goodness. God's actions define his character, who he is, not perceptions about his actions. So this is cool deal. God blesses human beings through those first two commands. And then there it is on the very pages of Genesis chapter 3, we see the drama of the first temptation play out. And then a little later on in Genesis 3, we see the disaster of the first sin enter the scene. And I think there's two sterling lessons that rise to the surface from this really tragic story. First one's this. Temptation always questions the goodness of God's commands. Every single time. Temptation to sin always questions the goodness of God's commands. Second one is this one. Sin always results from perceiving God as not good, not generous, not gracious, but instead as mean, stingy, and legalistic. Anytime you're ever at the brink, on the edge of sinning, those two factors will always be in play every single time, which means that if we want to stay far back away from the edge of sin, we'll have to, have to hold a correct understanding, a right understanding, a proper understanding of who God is, what he is like, what he is about. Standing firm against temptation and sin requires that we see God accurately, that we have a correct view of everything that he's about. And later on in Genesis chapter 3, God's goodness comes through louder and more clearly than ever, especially in what survives and what dies in Genesis chapter 3. You notice how gracious God is in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall of humanity? He didn't kill the humans instantly. They live. He permits them to live. He's gracious. And not only is he gracious, he's also generous. And he's generous in this way. God goes and kills the animals in order to make these clothes, these skins, to clothe these two naked and ashamed human beings. God's gracious and he's generous. And we could say at this point in the text, geez, God is anything but legalistic. He's quite the opposite, actually. We see again and again his generosity, his grace, his goodness unfold that we experience, we receive. And there's this question that is often raised. This is kind of a rabbit trail, kind of an aside, but it seems like an appropriate place to offer it up. We often hear this question, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever asked that? I have. Why do bad things happen to good people? I ask this question a lot. And what happens is most of us, we think of ourselves as good, right? We're bebopping through life, and most of us aren't in prison, and so we're like, yeah, I'm pretty good. 
And so then we assume because we're pretty good, we deserve then, well, what? We deserve only good things. So then what happens? Well, something bad happens. We're like, what the heck, God? I'm good. I'm bebopping through life, and things are going pretty good. God, I'm not in prison, remember? And then this bad thing happens, and boom, it like crushes us, knocks our legs out from underneath us. And we're going, what the heck? Shaking our fist at God and, what? I'm good. And what I'm about to say isn't fun to say, nor is it fun to hear for that matter. But the Bible tells us really, really clearly that from God's view, no one is good. That's God's view. No one is good. There was actually only one time in all of recorded history that bad things happened to an entirely perfect, good, totally good person. And it was when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the cruelest kind of death you can ever imagine. And he was a perfectly good, righteous, spotless, without blame person. One time in recorded history that bad things happen to a totally good person. And he did that because he loves you so much. Because he wanted to bring you and me and us, all of humanity, all of creation for that matter, back to him, to redeem us back to him. And this isn't fun to hear, and it's really not fun to say, since, though, I am bad, and that's all of us, since I'm bad, I can then and should actually expect bad things, and I should be surprised when good things, when blessed things happen to me. And so it causes the question to sort of be flipped on its head, why do good things happen to bad people? Really? And so that's the portrayal of God in the Old Testament. And some people perceive a really sharp contrast between the graciousness of Jesus Christ in the New Testament and the legalism of Yahweh in the Old Testament. But Jesus doesn't draw any kind of distinction between the two. There's no difference. As a matter of fact, Jesus starts his ministry by quoting from the Old Testament. Look at Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath day as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. How many of you have ever done that before? You walk through a grain field, yeah, and you break off a stalk of barley or a stalk of wheat. I've done it a, a ton. And you break it off and you nibble on it, you know, and have a little snack right there. So the disciples are doing that very thing. They're walking through this grain field. And here's the Pharisees, right? These are, these are the legalists. These are the professional legalists of Jesus Christ's day. Professional, paid legalists. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they breaking the law? Look at what they say. By harvesting grain on the Sabbath. So they, they climb way up the ladder of inference, don't they? Here's the disciples. They're walking through this grain field, picking off little stalks of grain, eating a few of them. But in their ask of Jesus, they, they portray it as if they had gotten out the combine. Right? They broke out the John Deere and they're cutting giant swaths through the field, up one side, down, right? Like harvesting grain on the, really? Breaking off heads of grain to eat, and look what they move it into. Harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Good heavens. And Jesus, you can almost picture him sort of rolling his eyes, right? Oh, my gosh. And he says to them, haven't you ever read in the scriptures? Ooh, let's go to the Bible, boys. What David did when he and his companions were hungry. Ooh. And these guys knew, the Pharisees knew, they're like, oh, great. Remember, boys, 
David went in. This is David, King David, man after God's own heart, stud of all studs. He went into the house of God during the days when Abathar was high priest, and he broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. He did that because they were hungry. His men were hungry because he also gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. That's him. Jesus is Lord, even over the Sabbath. Jesus went into the synagogue, and he's like, okay, enough enough about that. And he goes back into the synagogue. And he notices this man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies, that's the Pharisees, the professional legalists, they watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Another stretch, certainly. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. You know, be like me inviting one of you to come up here. Jesus does that. And this, you know, this poor guy. You're like, oh, great. Another show and tell. Here we go. And then Jesus turns to his critics. They're probably seated all together over here, arms crossed, stern look. And he asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Jesus is probing into their hearts. He knows what they're up to. Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? They, they wouldn't answer him. Sheepish. And he looked around at them angrily, and he was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. And then he says to the man, hold out your hand. Hold out your hand. And so the man held out his hand, and it was restored. Bam. Like brand new. And the Pharisees, they, they get up, and they went away and met with the supporters of Herod. Whoa, this is interesting. To plot how to kill Jesus. I mean, like, seriously, Jesus is so evil, isn't he? He's, like, healing people and stuff. And so, man, we got to, can't have any of that. Can we? And the professional legalists, the Pharisees, they've got this facade of appearing to care about the Sabbath, appearing to hold up God's law. But Jesus says, guys, just like it was okay for David to break the law to feed hungry men with holy bread that was set aside just for the priests, so too is it okay for my disciples to pluck grain on the Sabbath and eat it. Relax, guys. Relax. And there's these three distinct actions that we see unfold on that Sabbath day in Mark chapter two. What do we see? The disciples, they pluck some grain. Jesus, he heals a guy. And the Pharisees, they plot how to kill Jesus. And isn't it an interesting thing that the Pharisees think that it's illegal to pluck grain, illegal to heal on the Sabbath, but that it's somehow legal to plot murder on the Sabbath? And Jesus is going like, guys, you, you have it all wrong. It's okay to pluck grain. It's wrong to plot murder. It's good to heal on the Sabbath. Come on. Jesus isn't in any way a legalist. Neither is the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. But we often can be legalists, can't we? We very often can be legalists. In Christian legalism, it takes three forms. First one is this one. Keeping God's laws are often viewed as a way to earn salvation. Whoa. And some people try to argue that this isn't the case, but I promise you it is. Many, 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 many forms of legalism still thrive 
in the church today. Some Christians demand certain kinds of baptism, certain manifestations of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts, the avoidance of saying certain words, doing certain deeds to help the poor and so, abstinence from alcohol, on and on, these long lists. But understand, please, that God's word is absolutely crystal clear. Strict adherence to any law, any law cannot make you or me or anyone righteous in God's eyes. Only faith in God can do that. Second form of Christian legalism that's alive and well today is that very often keeping God's laws are viewed as a means to pay God back. Maybe sometime in your Christian experience, you heard something like this. A pastor or a Christian leader said something like, God has done so much for you. He died the cruelest death you could possibly imagine, hanging on the cross for you, bloody and beaten. He died on the cross for your sins. The least you can do for him is obey his commands. Ever heard something like that? And you know, at first brush, that doesn't sound too awfully sketchy, does it? The problem with that view is subtle. And it's that instead of God's laws being actually good for us, they're all of a sudden portrayed to be really good for God. And so then by obeying his commands, we're all of a sudden doing God favors. Yeah, I'm doing God all these favors. Aren't I something? But the Bible never ever says that we pay God back by our obedience. Never says we pay God back by our obedience. None of us, at least I presume, like being in debt, do we? None of us like being in debt, especially to God, right? But get this, we can't pay him back. He doesn't even want us trying to pay him back. Salvation from God is a free gift, no strings attached. And he doesn't want us paying him back. He just says, like, say thank you. Say thank you. Live a life of saying thank you, a life of gratitude. Lived in honor of him, not trying to dig out of the debt hole with him. Third form of Christian legalism that's alive and well today is that very often keeping God's laws are viewed as like duty or obligation. God said it, so I obey it. God said it, so I obey it. And that sounds fine. It sounds noble. But it's like this far from there to this gnarly thing called pride. And I think God hates pride just as much as he hates legalism. He doesn't want us going there either. And it sounds fine. It's like, okay, God said it, so I just obey it. But you move really quickly into this space called pride, and God says, no, no, no. That's not it either. Because the purpose of my law, the purpose of my commands, any command that I ever give you is because I want to live in closer relationship with you. I want to have the very best of you. I want to have your whole heart, not just little bits and pieces of you. And so living life in obedience to me is for the purpose of me knowing you intimately without a bunch of crud coming between God and us. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Invite you to move into a time of reflection, posture of communion even with God
And here's what I want to do in this time today. I just want to create some space for you to calibrate the law and grace deal with the Lord. And I'm going to talk through some things and I'm just going to invite you to hold those out before the Lord and see where you land on this spectrum of things I'm going to lay out here. Maybe you're a person who has been abusing God's grace. And by abusing God's grace, by that I mean that you know that there's a prohibition, you know that there's a standard that God has set and you've chosen intentionally to step across it and perhaps even live on the other side of it. And you did so knowingly And you said, maybe you said it out loud or maybe you just said it internally. You said, well, God's gracious, he'll, he'll forgive me. And you stepped across that line. And, you, and you've been like camped out there, living there. And you've been just taking wild advantage of God's grace. And Paul in the New Testament, he, he's got some pretty strong words for people who take advantage of God's grace. He says, may it never be. May it never be. He says, sure, God's grace abounds even when we screw up. But may it never be that we abuse his grace. And if you find yourself in that space where you've intentionally stepped across one of God's standards, I'd suggest that maybe today he's talking to you, he's tapping you on the shoulder and he's saying, you know, it's time to step back onto my side of that deal. And perhaps he's nudging your heart today saying, it's time to walk it back and it's time to drive a stake in the ground and it's time to stop taking advantage of the grace of God. And look, he says, I set up that standard, that prohibition, that law for your own good. It's not arbitrary. I didn't put it there just to make your life miserable. I put it there because I have your very best in heart and mind in everything I do, God says. And so maybe you've got some business to do on that side of the spectrum. Maybe you've been taking advantage of God's grace. Hear him today challenging you, walk it back, put it down, leave it alone. Don't abuse the grace of God. And then on the other side of the spectrum is this deal where maybe some of us, we've built fences around fences, right? Maybe some of us, we thought that God's law, God's prohibition wasn't stern enough, wasn't strict enough. And so we got out some posts and some barbed wire and we put up fences around God's fences and then we put up another one around that fence just to make sure that we never, ever, 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 ever went where God didn't want us to go. 
And maybe we've been judgmental with others and we've said, yeah, wish they could be like me. Well, I got that one all figured out. Why doesn't everyone else? And if you're a Christian legalist, if you're Pharisee-like in any way, perhaps God's tapping you on the shoulder today saying, hey, let's take those fences around fences down. Hear God say, you know, I think my standard, I think my prohibition, I think my law is probably good enough. I don't need yours on top of it. I definitely don't need your judgmentalism. I definitely don't need you holding other people to some random standard that I didn't even give you. Maybe there's some stuff and some ways that you need to extend the actual grace of God to yourself and to some other people in your world who you've had in the middle of the frying pan and you've been turning up the heat on and God's saying, no, 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 no. Let grace rain down there. Let grace rain down in them, through you, in you perhaps even. And so I just invite you to continue to do business with God around that. Maybe you've been abusing God's grace. Maybe you've been, maybe you've become a Christian legalist. And God, our prayer today is that you would calibrate those two things for every single one of us. That we'd see them as a tension that isn't meant to be resolved. but that are walking out of life with you that we would reflect who you are at your very core. That you're not a legalist, that your grace does abound, and that at the same time, God, that we wouldn't ever take advantage of your grace. Definitely, we need your help with this. That our hearts would be soft and moldable. And that, God, you would move across this community in like a tangible way. And that people who don't yet know you, that they would see you in us even in the very way that we hold this law grace thing in tension that, that they would see you please Jesus that's all we want people to see you 